0: Welcome to this week's Fit for Purpose podcast. This week, we've got actually a very different guest, David Price. He's managing partner of Fenchurch Law. And the reason we were so keen to talk to David on the podcast is that Fenchurch Law is really one of those law firms that is playing a key role in levelling up law in the UK. And I think everyone knows, perhaps traditionally in the past, how law has not been one of those most diverse sectors and, and there have been challenges around making sure it is. So it's on a journey and one of the projects we've worked with the law firms on and specifically the City of London Law Society, 14 or 15 law firms in the city, and Fenchurch Law is part of, part of that coalition, is to really look at how we can crack the nut on making sure that the legal sector in the city isn't just recruiting a a lot of diverse people, it's also making sure that they can really stay and thrive. So it'd be a really interesting discussion with David. David, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast today. You're a managing partner of a law firm. A lot of people won't really have a sense of of what that role actually means and how you get it. What's what's it actually involved being a managing partner at Fenchurch Law?
1: A lot of variety, which is good. And, and look, I should say thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Justine. It's a real privilege to be here. But in terms of what it means to be a managing partner, it's probably quite different for me than it is for the managing partner of very large law firms. So venture law is a boutique law firm. And what that means effectively is that we are small and we're specialists and we provide services that we think you know have a degree of sophistication about them. So I spend about half of my time doing casework for clients I spend the other half of my time running the firm so I really like the levelling the law initiative uh, for for a variety of reasons but one of the reasons I like it so much is that as a firm we actually are a very purpose-driven organisation and and our purpose is actually about levelling up as well but we've always said our purpose is levelling up the playing field for policyholders because we deal with insurance disputes on on behalf of policyholders so the whole leveling up initiative um it is something that's very close to, to our hearts
0: and from i think within the sector i mean obviously probably what most people don't know is for some time now it has really worked on trying to open itself up more tell us a little bit about from a fenchurch perspective some of the things that you've been doing to make sure that you're a law company that really can attract that widest possible talent?
1: The first thing to say is probably that we don't do this nearly as well as we would like to and you know you you talked about the law legal profession as a whole being on a journey and we're certainly on a journey ourselves but in terms of what we're trying to do in terms of making sure that we recruit as diverse a group of people as possible the main shift that we've taken over the past few years is to move from looking at the characteristics that we're interested in being disqualifying characteristics and looking at them exclusively in terms of being qualifying characteristics Mm -hmm. if I can explain that using an example take academic ability for example so that's going to be something that's important to every law firm they want to know that all of the people who are joining them have got a high degree of academic ability because that's really important in terms of our ability to provide a good service to our clients. Now, if you look at academic ability in terms of a disqualifying characteristic, then you may say, well, unless you've been to Oxbridge, unless you've been to a Russell Group University, unless you have a two-one, whatever it is, but if you don't meet that particular threshold, then you are disqualified and so you won't get through. We would look at academic ability in terms of a qualifying characteristic. So we need to be satisfied that our candidates have high academic ability, but we wouldn't look at anything that's happened in their past as being something that disqualifies them from it. It's just that if you were able to show a particular strong academic background, then that would qualify you. But if you're not able to show that, there may be other ways in order to demonstrate to us that you do have the sufficient level of academic ability and so we wouldn't strike you out. And you can take that approach of qualifying and disqualifying characteristics and apply it to every everything or or the other characteristics that are interesting to us as a firm. And when you do that, it allows you to look at candidates in terms of their potential and not exclusively in terms of where they are in terms of their current performance because, You do want people who are performing at a high level at the moment. Of course you do. But what's even more important than that is having people who have the ability to grow and to perform better in the future.
0: I think it's a really important point. And, you know, certainly, I mean, even in my own experience, um, I remember my A-level results, I wouldn't say were that great. But partly it's because I think I just had quite quick but not great advice on which subjects to pick so I ended up picking subjects I thought I ought to do and I think unfortunately for me I probably just bumped into some someone who'd been on a get women into engineering um initiative because uh, he steered me towards doing engineering and that meant I had to do physics, uh, which was the only science I'd pick because I didn't really like science. And then I wasn't very good at physics, but I ended up doing that at A-level. And I only did economics as a a third A-level because I, I had to do, you know, not just physics and maths. It turns out I was brilliant at economics, still rubbish at physics. But in a sense, if you looked at my grades, they they were as much a representation of just bad choices, to be honest, um, at A levels as anything else. So I think I think you're absolutely right. And presumably for, for Fenchurch law, you know, part of this is also making sure that as a law company, when you get those more diverse people coming through the door and starting a career, that you're actually also a law firm that can nurture them. As you say, they're often on a journey and 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 maybe there's more that you need to do as an organization to help them help them succeed
1: absolutely it's all about getting high potential people through the door and then doing everything we can to nurture that potential but it's super important to us i think not just as a individual law firm but i think it's really really important for the legal sector as a whole because a lot of the discussion around the leveling up objectives is focused on fairness and that's really really important but I think it doesn't go far enough on its own in order to meaningfully change the behavior of the people whose behavior we do need to change. And for me, there needs to be more of a focus on actually creating the most effective organizations. And the way I I think about the the difference between those two things is that what we're talking about here is, is all connected with purpose. And purpose is unbelievably powerful. But we've only individually, in my view, got a limited amount of bandwidth for purpose. So we've all probably as individuals, if we're purpose driven, which people increasingly are, have got one or two purposes that we're really passionate about. And we are going to be active supporters of those purposes. We've got any number of other things that we believe in. but where we are passive supporters and the the, the leveling up initiative is something where there's a high degree of support within the legal sector. I'm no doubt about that in terms of its basic fairness but whilst the narrative is focused primarily on basic fairness I think there's a risk that the support that the legal sector is going to provide to that is going to be largely passive support Mm -hmm. whereas it seems to me there's a a huge opportunity to flick the switch in the minds of the leaders within the legal community and to show how important it is in terms of the competitive advantage of each of our individual organizations, but also the UK legal sector as a whole. Because if we don't level up, then what we're doing is we're effectively drawing talent from an artificially restricted pool. Mm -hmm. So if we think that all of the best candidates all look and sound the same as each other. Um, First of all, we're wrong, but also what we're doing is recruiting from a talent pool that is too small. Whereas if we realize that actually the best and most high potential candidates could come from any kind of background, then that frees us up to recruit from a much, much wider talent pool and gives us a huge competitive advantage so if, if we in the UK legal sector crack this and we really do begin to recruit truly diverse teams then we will have a huge competitive advantage as against other legal sectors in other parts of the world and that's a massive opportunity as I see it.
0: I think you're absolutely right and you know in a sense I think law is one of those very vocational professions in its own way it is fundamentally about a level playing field for everyone and I also think it's a living thing isn't it you know I was a, a minister secretary of state for a long time and we passed laws and so it's this sense of if you're going to if you're going to have a, a legislative agenda and a legal sector there to prosecute defend it you absolutely have to have the very best most creative talent i think in this part of life and and so i think it's it's important for the law firms but i i genuinely think more nationally it really really matters to get you know some amazing bright talented creative people going into the legal sector and in terms of the the leveling up law project we've been um, you know, involved with, with you and Fenchurch Law and the other law firms. How's that felt as a project? Um, is it sort of what you expected? Have, have there been challenges? How's it actually gone from your perspective,
1: David? i would love being able to talk about it and being able to focus on it because, again, it comes back to active and passive support. Is this something where you could have asked any of the people involved in the project a year or two ago whether it's something they generally support? They would have said yes. And if you ask them what they're actually doing push forward the, the ideas behind the initiative, they would probably, if they're being honest, say, well, not actually very much. So what it's a great opportunity to do is, is actually to force us to take the time away from the other things that we've got and prioritise this and turn our attention to it. But it hasn't felt easy um, because a- a- as a firm, as a legal community, we've got a lot more to do and recognizing that you're at the start of the journey is sometimes a difficult thing to do and recognizing that there's no easy fix can be a little bit daunting, but for me personally, and I would really encourage other people that have been involved in the initiative as well, the fact that the solutions aren't straightforward is something that shouldn't be putting us off. If we continue to turn our attention to this, I I, I call it a problem, but I could equally call it an opportunity, If we turn our attention to it and act work diligently towards it for a long enough period of time we will make significant progress will we ever get to the perfect place that we would like to get to who knows maybe we won't but if we can make significant progress from where we are now then that would be great
0: i think that's absolutely right and one of the problems i think is that often these issues are quite cultural at times um part of it is about changing social norms know alongside the other part as you said David that is about looking at your processes and how you recruit people how they progress and so it's not straightforward but it's also why the prize for making progress is is so great because this is hard but if you can crack it you really will have accomplished something that yeah in other sectors in other countries they do also find it really hard to do and I One thing I I wanted to really ask you as well was just where COVID and the potential different working environment that comes out of COVID, where that all fits in. So people are going to be doing much more hybrid working. Do you think that slightly changes almost the calculus on not only who you can recruit, but also then maybe some challenges actually on, on how you progress people when they're more based
1: from home? There's one really big change that it's going to make which is that there is going to be even less of a focus on all the perceived best people having to be clustered in and around London Mm -hmm. and for the legal profession in particular the, the idea of a city firm has always had connotations with the elite not just in terms of you know, potentially inappropriate exclusivity, but also in terms of the, you know, the quality of the output of the firms who are clustered in the city. And, you know, it's reflected in simple things like the amount of money that we are uh, entitled to charge our clients for the work that we do. If you're a city firm, the hourly rate that the court will permit you to recover is very different to if you are an Outer London firm or a Birmingham firm or a Manchester firm or a firm that's in the countryside. Now, for me, that difference in hourly rates has never really been about geography. It's been a geographical shorthand for something else, which is how sophisticated specialist is this advice that we're getting and how experienced is the person that's doing it. Those are the three things effectively that affect legitimately how much lawyers are entitled to charge their clients, how sophisticated the advice is, how specialist it is, and the experience of the person giving it. Now, with the COVID having forced us to see that we can all work, certainly in the legal sector, as well remotely as we ever could from offices, it shows that there's really no need for all of the people who are performing at a really high level in the legal community having to work in London and therefore having to live around London. There's no reason why you can't have a much wider geographical distribution of elite legal talent. And that's really exciting. We've had, in in fact, only this morning, one of my colleagues said that they're gonna take a two week holiday in the States over the summer, COVID permitting, obviously, it'd be great (laughs) if you could get there. And he said, and, and actually, I'd like to then spend another two weeks in California working remotely. Now, two years ago, I might have had to scratch my head a little bit to wonder how that could work at a practical level. I didn't have to scratch my head at all this morning. All I said was, go ahead, that sounds great. We've seen that working remotely is no kind of a problem at all. If you trust the person, then there's no barrier to a lot more flexibility as a result of what we've seen from COVID
0: do you think that it'll affect how you progress people so obviously part of um part of your development is learning on the job and and i certainly you know as a fledgling accountant at price waterhouse coopers you know you listen to see how other people deal with clients on the phone in the office and you know there's quite a lot of your learning that that does happen by being in close proximity. Are Fen Churchill starting to think about, well, how do you get that side of career development happening if people are more home-based?
1: It's a really, really good point, and it is one of the two main concerns that we have about being fully remote for too long. The other one being the extent to which we can maintain the social cohesion between the team. but. Mm -hmm. I actually think the learning by osmosis, if you like, that you've described is the most important challenge for knowledge workers and particularly those in the legal sector to grapple with going forward. And my own view is that it's going to be essential for them to be a degree of office-based working so that the junior people in the team can see how their colleagues and people that have been doing the job longer than them operate. And that's not just to see this is how it's done, But you learn as much from seeing how people do things badly as how people (laughs) do things well. You've just got to see and observe how other people do things. And then you can say, well, I'm going to pick the best thing of that person, the best thing of that person, the best thing of that person. And when I've got a bit more experience, I will be performing at a higher level than any of them because I'll pick the best bits and I'll eliminate the mistakes. You know, that's a learning exercise that whether you do it consciously or whether you do it unconsciously, every junior in a professional service firm is going to be doing to a greater or lesser extent. And you can't replicate that if you're remote all the time. And I think the interesting question that I don't have the answer to at the moment, but we'll all begin to get the answer in the next few years is what proportion of your time do you need to spend around other people in order to be able to capture that benefit? Now, I don't think it's going to be five days a week. I don't even think it's going to be four days a week. Is it going to be more than one day a week? I don't know, but it's going to be it's going to be somewhere Uh, and it will be really interesting to see where ultimately we land on that.
0: And you can see it um, you can see it becoming increasingly structured, where almost we're, we, we need to get a better understanding of that career capital, if I can call it like that, and how that builds up. Um, and I think that's what this will drive because I think we'll start to understand there are some different parts of it um, around expertise, around managing relationships you know, around working in teams, etc. But then, I, you know, I really wouldn't be surprised if you end up in a situation where, you know, there will be some people who are working for five days in the office, there'll be younger people, and um, they will be more exposed, possibly to, you know, more senior staff members who, you know, maybe only working two days in the office, but actually, there'll be a steady flow through of all of them for, for some kind of exposure to happen. But, it is interesting um, and it's this classic thing where whenever you have quite a structural change and I think COVID will be, you no know, socially, mm-hmm. there are opportunities and threats. The opportunity actually is that people can work in London, quote unquote, who never would have been able to afford to do that before, just purely often commuting. I think the downside is, is what you've just talked about, David, and cracking that nut of making sure that you know if you're sat at home a that your home working environment is okay to work in and you know that you're not disadvantaged by not being able to come in the office but but b that you don't lose out on all of those other aspects of how you how you steadily develop I guess um now I wanted to ask you you mentioned purpose and I think you're absolutely right about that um it is it's about, you know, knowing what drives you, really. And it's of something really important to Fenchurch Law. So tell us a little bit about why you think purpose matters to the business. But then I also want to sort of dig into like uh, your purpose, you know, what drives you. But, but m- maybe let's start with purpose and Fenchurch
1: Law first. It binds people together. Simple as that. Um, w- there are any number of reasons why people will take a job in the first place, but in order to maintain motivation for people in the long term, the—I uh, mean, whether it's science or not—but but, but the, the academics seem to be pretty clear that essentially, for certainly in a in a knowledge worker context, there are essentially three things that together support motivation over extended periods of time, and that is having a high degree of autonomy being able to master a complex discipline and having a sense of purpose and particularly having a shared purpose with your colleagues. So if you have someone who's setting out with an individual career that doesn't really involve other people, then you might have someone that can sustain themselves with an individual purpose of their own. But if you're looking at having an organization, which is gonna be sustainable over a longer period of time, then having a sense of shared purpose is is absolutely essential to that because mm-hmm. we're not in a situation any longer, if we ever were, but we're certainly not in a situation any longer where it's going to be exciting for anybody to turn up to work for the intention of making the shareholders of the company that they work for lots of money. You know, that is not going to sustain you over yeah. a long period of yeah, time. Yeah. Whereas if you get out of bed in the morning thinking, well, I, I'm doing this for a reason, and mm-hmm. if I do it well, then I will feel satisfied by doing it then that is something that can sustain you indefinitely
0: i think that's spot on and in a sense i think for like running an organisation you can either have purpose or prescription because if you have purpose then everybody knows what they're trying to accomplish and like what's the mission and so you don't need someone constantly telling you what to do because you can work it through yourself and it's your point on autonomy but I think if you don't have that then yeah you end up codifying it in all sorts of if that happens do this if this happens do something else and I just think it's such a constraining environment for people by comparison to really going into an organization where you absolutely know what everyone is there to try and achieve and and so for me it's a no-brainer but actually as you say it's quite old school in a way to to just have that quite narrow lens on what you're about um and I think there's a quite steady but significant shift away from from that now to to much more purpose-driven business and and for you David you know you're leading the law firm um but what's your personal purpose in all of this? I mean, or maybe tell us a little bit about why you end up in law compared to any other um, career choice you might have made.
1: Goodness, that that's a really good question. But my answer actually isn't a very good one. I always <laughs> wanted to be a lawyer and I always wanted to deal with disputes. And I'm not really sure why that was the case. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Did it I just remember... appeal to you? It, it, it always appealed to me and it was it was particularly resolving disputes that appealed to me. So I remember in the very first week of my training contract and in a training contract for people who, who don't know, you spend two years learning how to become a lawyer and you spend six months in four different departments doing different things. Now, one of the six months that I spent was in dispute resolution and I was asked during the first week of my training contract what I thought I might like to do and the person asking the question really wanted to set my mind running to thinking which of these four things might I like to choose when I uh, when I qualified and to turn into a career and I said well I don't really need to think about that because I already know I want to do dispute resolution now I said this before I'd actually practiced any dispute resolution <laughs> at all and so the person asking the question thought I was a bit odd or, or, or maybe yeah a, a, a bit of an idiot to be honest but for me being a dispute resolution lawyer and being a transactional lawyer, two completely different jobs. And I wouldn't have wanted to be a transactional lawyer any more than I would have wanted to be an accountant. You know, I just knew mm-hmm. that being a dispute resolution mm-hmm. lawyer was was the thing for me. So that's what brought me into into dispute resolution. And what brought me into insurance, dispute resolution, is um, probably a little bit more uh, unexpected. And it was just that I hadn't appreciated when I went into the law just how much the insurance industry is involved in the majority of commercial disputes that happen in uh, in any economy really and so when I saw the extent to which insurance played a huge part in dispute resolution I wanted to be as close to the centre of that market as possible and then I made the final transition which was so important for my career from acting on behalf of insurers to acting on behalf of policyholders and Mm so when I set up Fenchurch Law in 2010 there were no other law firms in the UK at that time specializing exclusively in representing policyholders in insurance disputes and so you had 99.9 percent of specialist insurance lawyers acting just for insurers and I wanted to take my specialist knowledge that I'd built up acting for insurers and flip it on its head and use it to represent policyholders who needed to get their insurance claims paid.
0: And at the time they were, what, being represented by who exactly? Their, their broader lawyers? That yeah,
1: them? It's exactly right. By and large, it was by, by generalist solicitors. So these were general commercial litigators, many of who were really excellent. But my experience of representing insurers in relation to those disputes is that the generalists who were, we were coming up again, might have been amazing at dispute resolution and incredibly intelligent incredibly effective but because they weren't living and breathing insurance day in day out they simply weren't able to Mm. compete with us on a level playing field because insurance is really as an area of law is a very specialist area and it's it's an area where just knowing what contract law is isn't necessarily going to get you everywhere you need to be and so it felt to us that there was a really unlevel playing field and that policyholders weren't able to access the same level of specialist support that insurers were able to get. I mean there's also a financial imbalance, most insurers are financially incredibly muscular compared with the policyholders who are asking them to pay the claim so that's also something that was important to us in terms of moving over to the policyholder side of the fence but essentially what we wanted to contribute to in our own small way, was allowing policyholders to be able to access the same level of specialist support that insurers have been taking for granted for years.
0: I think it's really interesting because in a way it just gets to the heart of what the legal system is all about, which is people having a case fairly heard. And you know, that does that does often need some expertise to, to put it across. So you end up Um, On this journey that actually sees you develop a bit of the market, I guess, in effect, and start your own business, start to create some opportunities. It must have been really satisfying to see Fenchurch Law, you know, not only get off the ground, but really thrive over the years since you set it up. Has it been a
1: straightforward path to grow the firm or or a bit bumpy at times? (laughs) (laughs) any new business is not straightforward I think any anyone who starts a business and runs a business for any period of time will tell you that it's not straightforward we knew that it wasn't going to be straightforward when we started off but we felt that we had the resilience in order to meet any challenges that presented themselves and actually the challenges are really the fun part if it was all easy and if it was a straight line to success then it wouldn't actually be as much fun as it as it really is Um, But the really satisfying thing has been to provide a pathway for purpose-driven individuals on the insurer side of the market Mm -hmm. to come over to the policyholder side and join us if they really love the area of work that they're in, but want to bring more of a a purpose-driven approach to it. So the people that join us tend to be people that love the specialism, they love dealing with insurance disputes, but they're attracted by the David and Goliath approach that you know you, you have if you're representing policyholders and they're attracted by the fact that for a policyholder every dispute is that much more of a big deal than it is from the insurers because the insurers deal with so many disputes that it comes down a lot of the time just to numbers and there are mm-hmm. a lot of really good people who, who who work in insurance and I'm a big fan of the insurance market as a whole I'm not saying anything bad against insurers but it's a little bit more routine if you're representing insurance yeah. And if you're representing a policy holder for whom it could be, you know, the life or death of the company.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really, really interesting. And I mean, so obviously for you, I mean, this is why it's such an interesting discussion. It's not just about the, the law career you've had, it's actually that you've done so much more than that. And, you know, you set up this business and and obviously, hopefully it can continue to go from strength to strength. But if you were, if you were talking to a much younger version of David, you know, um, years ago, almost at school, what advice do you think, you know, with all of this journey you've been on, what advice to your younger self do you think you'd, you'd give uh, for, for little David at the beginning of a career or still at school?
1: I think have fun. When I began my training contract, one of the things that really struck me In the first few months is that the people in the particular office I was working in just didn't seem like they were having much fun and I found that really tough you know coming from school coming from university environments where they are enjoyable yes you're working hard but they're enjoyable Uh, I found it difficult to be in an environment where it just looked like people weren't having fun I was hugely fortunate when I was a very newly qualified solicitor that I got a new boss who came in and both enjoyed himself and was effective at his job as well. And it made me realize that something being work doesn't necessarily mean it's not fun. You can, have, you, you can have both. And so I'd say to anyone, you know, coming into the legal profession, enjoy it, you know? And if you're not enjoying it, find an area that you do enjoy. Great advice. And
0: conversely, we're into the quick fire questions. I'm going to ask you a few questions now, David, just to close. Okay. up. What's the best advice anyone else has given to you?
1: If you smile, you can achieve anything.
0: <laughs> Who told you that?
1: So that was the managing partner of the firm that I worked for immediately before starting French Act Law. And you know, I've always brought a high degree of intensity to my job, but he just said, just smile more. You know, if, if you smile more, then you know, you know, it will make you more effective as well. And so I think that's the same for everybody. If you work with a smile on your face, it will attract people to you, whether that's clients, whether it's people you want to join the firm or, or whoever, you know, it's the, the phrase, isn't it? If you smile, the world smiles with you. And it's, it's so true.
0: And I guess it. Ties back to your your other answer in a sense of of having fun, and that's that's kind of how you make it happen. So yes. next question, then proudest career moment.
1: So the the firm that I worked at, where, where that managing partner was uh, in charge, worked in the building that french Law currently is at the moment, and. About 95% of what that previous firm did, I thought it did really, really well, but it had 5% where I thought this just isn't the right way to run a law firm. So essentially, the way I look at it is leaving that firm and creating French Church Law is a little bit like going on the odyssey to capture that 95% that was just right and add in the 5% that I thought could be done in a a better way. And then Mm -hmm. when we came back to the same building that I'd left seven years previously... And it was opening the doors of Fenchurch Law again in that building that really did feel fabulous and felt like coming home. Brilliant.
0: And then finally, favourite book, favourite movie, what would you say?
1: Favourite book, and it is 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. And the reason it is, is because that was the first book of his that I'd read. And I knew within the first couple of pages that I wanted to read every word that he'd ever written. And it's been like stepping into a new world. It's been amazing.
0: I've read that book it is quite um, mind-blowing as a story isn't it absolutely incredible so I definitely recommend it just some brilliant answers David it's been fantastic having you do the podcast genuinely interesting but also I think pragmatic on the journey the law's still on Um, but brilliant to have you on board the leveling up law project and, and Fenchurch Law and fantastic to hear about the work that your firm is doing to to lead the way and, and make sure that, you know, you're an organisation certainly that's open to that wider talent. So David, thank you very much for being on the Fit for Purpose podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.